This summer, we began studying a section of the Bible known as the post-exilic texts. And this section of scripture known as the post-exilic texts really captures a message about the faithfulness of God. So I have entitled this sermon series through the post-exilic texts as Faithful to Fulfill. In this sermon series, we will be studying God as he is revealed in the books of Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. That is the section of the Hebrew Bible that is known as the post-exilic texts. It is post-exilic because it is in reference to a period in the history of God's people known as the exile. It comes after it, hence we call it post-exilic. In the program of God's redemption of the fallen earth and his work through the, the, the people of Israel to make them a nation, to be a light to the nations, more than being a light specifically to be a priesthood to the nations of the earth. You know what a priest is. A, pre a priest is one who mediates between a, a, a God and, and humanity, God and creation. And so Israel was to be this priesthood, not just an, a, a mere nation, but a priestly nation who would shine God's light into the creation, into the darkness, and draw the nations unto himself. Now, nations all have defining uh, events in their histories, and the post-exile is a very defining event for the people of Israel. All lands, all nations, all peoples, all cultures have these defining moments in their histories. Think about our land. Think about North America. You go, you go back thousands and thousands of years to the so-called Paleo-Indian era in which we have the first inhabitants of the Americas. You fast forward into the 10th century and you, 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 you read about the events of Vikings visiting North America. There's Eric the Red and Leif Erikson. As well, there are events of Italians and Spaniards and Portuguese and the Irish, Turks, Muslims, black Africans, Chinese, making journeys into the Americas. You fast forward to 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You fast forward to 1619, the year that black Africans were forcibly brought over to what later would become the 13 colonies. You move to uh, uh, 1619. 36, and there's Roger Williams establishing Rhode Island. You go to the 1700s, so the 1730s through the 60s, and we have what's known as the Great Awakening, which really defined, really defined us as a, as a nation. You go to 1776, and there you have the event of the Declaration of Independence, and it was signed. And, and, and then you go forward to 1787, and you have the Constitution of the United States of America. And you have Civil War from 1861 to 1865. You have the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862. You have the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863. Jump forward from 1863 for sake of time. We jump forward 100 years. We, we move over World War I and World War II, the advent of the Adam and industrialization and radio and TV from 1863 to 1963. And there we are with President John Kennedy addressing the nation on TV, advocating for the Civil Rights Act. This nation, to quote Kennedy, for all of its hopes and all of its boasts will not be fully free until all citizens are free, he said. A week later, he submitted a proposal to Congress for the most comprehensive civil rights le legislation in U.S. history. That was June. By November, he was assassinated. That was a huge event in our culture, in this nation. Not to mention uh, th th this event taking place, the assassination of Kennedy, uh, in the same year that we witnessed the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. These events, these moments, these people, uh, they, they shape 
what we are in today. The Cold War, the Vietnam War in the 1950s up to 75. You have in 1979 the U.S. Embassy being taken over in Tehran. We had the Iranian militants who held Americans hostage for 444 days while decrying the U.S. and demanding the return of the Shah and his riches. You remember that? In 18, uh, 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 in uh, 1986, you had the Challenger that exploded. I'll never forget that. 73 seconds after liftoff. In 1987, Reagan cha challenged Gorbachev. Tear down the wall. You remember that? And, and you remember 1990, Iraqi troops invading Kuwait, leading to the Persian Gulf War in 91. And, and, and we had the Desert Storm and the Iraqis. In 92, you had Bush and... Russian President Boris Yeltsin meet at Camp David and they formally declared the end of the Cold War. And then, you know, 1992, we had the L.A. riots. 93, the World Trade Center bomb. 95, there was the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma that killed 168 people. In 2001, we had 9-11. We had so, so many moments, so many tragedies, so many highs, so many lows, and all of those define us as a nation. And, and I rattle those off and you can... you, 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 you can flash back or you remember those or if you're young you've you, you know you've studied those things and so too for the people of Israel when I say post exile right like that draws up something if you are a Bible person in particular if, if your ethnicity is has Jewish origins you are Jewish you're Hebrew if I say post exile that conjures up something and so, so I share that kind of U.S. history just to get you to try, just to try and step into what it is when, when, when the minister gets up in front of God's people and says, we're studying post-exile. When you hear that phrase, it should stir something in you. And it's not going to stir something in you unless you're taught this, unless you know this history. And so very broadly, by way of introduction, four key events in the history of God's people Israel and I'll, I'll, I'll organize them around alliteration for sake of just, you know, uh, try, trying to remember these things. Covenant, calling, conquest, calendar. Really quickly, covenant. The story of Israel begins with the event of the God of creation coming, coming to a nomadic, wandering, elderly, uh, 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 unrighteous nobody named Abram. Abram wasn't running around looking for God. Abram didn't didn't do anything, uh, you know, he didn't merit this encounter, this event. God is the initiator of this event. And God comes to him, and God makes a promise to him, promises a synonym for covenant, and God promises that he is going to give him a progeny. He's going to take that progeny to a place, the promised land. The progeny will be in the place, and through the progeny in the place, the promised land, there will come prosperity to the nations. Not just economic, not socio-cultural, but spiritually. You see, God was choosing him, a fallen man, to be a part of this story of redemption where he is going to bring the earth back. He's going to redeem the earth. In fact, he's going to usher in a new heavens and new earth through Abram. And this is, uh, this is where it starts with this event. This is where it begins. These, these are the origins. Even as I rattle off some things about North American history, we struggle with, okay, where do we begin? Do we begin with Paleo-Indians? Do we begin with various travelers before Columbus? Do you start with Columbus? Do you start with 1619? Do you start with, you know, uh, other dates in the 1600s or 1776? Like, where, what, what do you, where do you go for your origins? Well, God's Word gives us the origins of God's people, so it's not a debate. It begins with covenant, the God of creation. 
stepping into creation and electing Abram. And then the children of Abram, they come just as God promised, and God calls them out of a, a, a place of enslavement in Egypt. God is a great abolitionist who rescues them from this in faithfulness to his promise. He rescues them from this in the exodus in Egypt, and he brings them to the place of promise. And as he's bringing them to the place of promise, he gives them another covenant or a contract, the Sinaitic covenant. He comes through the prophet Moses and he reveals himself and he, he, he gives them what we know today as the Torah, the opening books of the Hebrew Bible, and he reveals to them himself. He tells them who he is and what he's come to do, and, and, and he gives them mitzvahot, commandments that they are to abide by so as to distinguish them as his priesthood in the fallen creation. There are to be a different people, a separate people. Incidentally, to be separate from is what it means to be holy, and so he gives them commands about how they are to behave, uh, what they are to believe, and even how they are to eat and to dress they are to be visibly, outwardly different and inwardly different. And, and, and this is a unique people with a, with a unique calling. Even in our culture, we have certain occupations that have certain uniforms. And you can go, oh, that's a police officer, that's a fireman, that's a nurse, you know. Um, look, I, that's a pastor up there, what is he wearing, right? So you have different uniforms that, that connote this. The people of Israel had a uniform given to them. This is how you dress. This is how you eat. This is how you worship. And speaking of worship, they were given the tabernacle, this, this physical tent, this, this portable tent that was to be a porthole of the heavens where the God of creation would manifest himself in creation. And so this is that event of calling Egypt, Exodus, right? Abolition. And there they get the tabernacle. There they're brought to the land of promise. That leads to a third event of conquest. They enter into the land. They assemble themselves as, as, as God called them. And, and they're under that Torah. And they're under these mitzvot, these commandments. And they're seeking after the Lord. And, and they're not doing so hot of a job, if you know the history of this, uh, this era. And God is, 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 is faithful to the, the promise. And he keeps blessing them. And the tabernacle turns into a temple because no longer they're in the wilderness wandering to the land of promise. They are now in the land of promise. And so now the tent becomes the temple. And God opens the heavens to the earth in this porthole where, where God manifests his presence among fallen creation. And when you know the story of the people of Israel, you know that that story is preceded by another story. It's the story of humanity. The story of Abram is tied to the story of Adam. And Adam, that's the Hebrew word for man, the beginning of creation. The first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve. And they, they lived with God in paradise. They lived in God's presence and everything was right. There was no guilt. There was no shame. There was no regret. There was none of the things that we experience on a daily basis today. But they rebelled against God and ushered in those things and along with those things, death. And God removes his presence from them. And so in this era of conquest, in this entry into the land of promise, you find in the ancient tradition, they believe that this particular plot of real estate was actually where it all began. This is where Adam and Eve created this mess. This is where Abram's seed would come and restore this mess. That temple, that temple is a, is a picture of paradise lost. And God is re-entering into the creation and restoring all things. 
Now, you know the, the, the history of this era, and they stumble, and they don't uh, submit themselves to Torah, and they aren't a separate people. They end up looking like the other nations, and so the kingdom crumbles, and they go into exile. This leads to the fourth sweeping point. This is just an overview of history as we're stepping into a, a new section of the, of the Bible this morning that I'm going to take you to. I want you to have these events in mind so that, that, you, that as you step into it, you have that context. This fourth point, we move from covenant to calling to conquest to calendar. In God's calendar for his people, he is now sovereignly bringing them back into the land. The foreign powers, the Assyrians and the Babylonians that wiped them out, that sent them out, that exiled them out, have now been overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire. The Persians come in and they say, y'all can go back. And now, now exile is post, post-exilic. Now we have arrived back in the land. And as they move back into the land after this season of exile, it sweeps in three broad movements. I'll put them in front of you. You have a, a first wave and a second wave and a third wave. The first wave begins with Zerubbabel. And they begin laying the foundation of the temple. They begin laying an altar. And there, this era of history, you can read about in the book of Ezra. And in the book of Ezra, you get details about Zerubbabel. A second wave comes, which you also read about in the book of Ezra, with Ezra. And, and, and the people come. And a final wave comes with Nehemiah, or Nehemiah as we commonly say, where they begin to rebuild the walls around this sacred place. So you have these three sweeps. You have these historical books of Ezra, also the book of Esther, and the book of Nehemiah. These are three historical books in the post-exilic canon of texts. Then you have three prophetic books. They are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And this is how it all fits together. So we're studying this section, and we're not just going kind of book by book, because we began with a study in Ezra, and we paused that study of Ezra when we got up to the fifth chapter. Let me remind you of where we were, and if you're here this morning for the first time, this gets you up to speed with where we left off. We were in Ezra, and we read in Ezra, when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah, in Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Zerubbabel, right, he comes and they began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And so what we did, we were in the history, Ezra, and we went from chapter 1, we studied all the way up to here in chapter 5, and we go, oh, he's talking about the prophets. He's, 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 Ezra's giving us this history here, and now he brings up Haggai and Zechariah. So we, we took a pause, and we said, well, let's jump over to the prophets. Let's stop the narrative, the history, and we'll jump over to prophecy. And so we just finished last week wrapping our study in the book of Haggai, or Haggai as we commonly say, and now we are jumping over to Zechariah. If you would open your Bibles and find your way to Zechariah. We began a study of the great prophet Zechariah, who's writing at the beginning of these waves that are coming back from exile. You know your history. You just got a quick introduction here. This is an exciting moment. We are being brought back to the land. 
God is faithful to his promise. The progeny, those people from Abram are being brought back to the place. The temple will be restored. The creator will manifest himself in creation. We, we, we will pick up our calling to be a priesthood and be a light to the nations. We're being brought back to the land. This is so exciting. And then all the excitement gets dashed really quick as they start to get really petty with each other. They start to divide, and they start to give up, and they start to leave. And they start caving to outside forces that were punking them. And they, and they start to just, you know, let go and kind of give up and just pause and then go on and do their own thing. And we read in Haggai, Haggai opens with him calling them to knock it off. And he actually calls out specifically their sin of, 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 of spending their money and their time making their own physical homes look nice instead of taking their time and energy first to prepare the temple for fallen creation. And so Haggai, he calls them out. We finished studying all of Haggai, and now God sends another prophet, Zechariah, to come to them, to, to, to speak to them. Look, you've been brought to this place, and now you're divided, now you're discouraged, now you're in darkness. What are you doing? And so God sends yet again a prophet to the prodigals in the post-exile, and hence I've titled today's message just that, Prophets for Prodigals. We've studied the first prophet, now we're getting into the second. Prophets for prodigals. A prodigal is a person who leaves home in a sinful manner. A prodigal is someone who abandons, who, who walks away from that which is good to go to that which is extravagant or opulent. In fact, the Latin word prodigalis is a word that means lavish or opulent, you know, bling bling or whatever, right? Like you, you leave your home, you leave your family, to go party, to go get your bling on, to, to, to go, you know, have your way with everything that the world offers and all of its accoutrements. That's the prodigal. Now, Zechariah is the antithesis of a prodigal. He is homeward focused. He's focused on the people. He's focused on the land. Many scholars believe that he was born in the era of the exile, and so he's a, a younger leader than perhaps Haggai and some of the priests and the people who are before them. Recall in previous studies that part of the dividedness that's going on among the people is the pettiness of some people who remember the days the, uh, before all this exile, the days of Solomon's great temple, and they're, 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 you know, saying, hey, it was better back then, what are we doing? And they're, you know, dropping the haterade on the people who are trying to rebuild, and they're going, you know, what is going on? And everyone's discouraged, and it's like, you know what, fine then, I'm not going to, you know, I'm just going to go back to my house and do my own thing. Zechariah is a prophet who says, no, you're not going to do your own thing. This is a God thing, the fact that you are here means that, that, that God is sovereign. There's no reason for you to be here other than the promise that God made to Abram. And I, as a prophet, Zechariah is going to say, I'm calling you back to faithfulness to this covenant. He's not only a prophet, he's also a priest. So that we've studied what priests are, so he's of the line of Levi. That puts him in a unique place because often the prophets are those who expose the priests. If you study the Bible, you see the prophets a lot of times are going, going for the priests. They're going after the institutional corruption. They're going after the people in power. And they're going, what are, what are y'all doing? What are, what are you doing? You're supposed to be the priest. What are, what are these shenanigans you're playing? We'll see that very loudly when we get to our study of Malachi. He has, he has hard words for the people. Zechariah, Haggai, they also have hard words. But this time, Zechariah is in a unique place because he's not just a prophet. He's also a priest. The name Zechariah, for note-taking purposes, his name means this. The Lord remembers. 
The Lord remembers. That's what his name means. And he will reveal to the people just that, that the Lord remembers. And that moves us into the outline to this opening point about announcement. And if you would, draw your eyes at the text and see the announcement of Zechariah. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius. Let's, let's stop. We're going to do a lot of, you know, kind of 405 traffic. Go a little stop. Go a little stop. Go a little stop. More stopping than going, just like the 405, so that we can stop and understand what's going on. So he, he comes on, on the heels of Haggai, as we've seen. It, this is a time marker here so that you understand that. The eighth month of the second year of Darius. This is the prophetic way of telling time. If I said in the days of Kennedy, in the days of Reagan, in the days of Bush, in the days of Clinton, right? In the, in the days of Trump, in the days of Biden... That's gonna, it, it, it goes, oh, okay, I know when that is, but, 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 it's not just, oh, okay, I know when that is, but it also conjures up something, depending on which way you lean, even what I said a moment ago, the days of Biden, you, you might have had a certain reaction to that, the days of Trump, you might have had a certain reaction to that, the days of Clinton, the days of Bush, the days of Reagan, and so on and so forth, you, have to, you know, it's like, okay, I know the time, but I also know I don't like this time. I don't like this moment that you are referencing here. And so the point is that the prophets give you these names as time markers, but also for purposes of drawing the emotion of the reader and giving the reader the context. This is a historical figure, Darius. Uh, here's a, a piece of archaeology that you, know, you can see it's in the sands of time. This is a real figure. This is real history. But see, what, what Zechariah is doing isn't history. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther do. They write history. What Zechariah is doing is giving prophecy. And recall that the prophets aren't just foretellers of the future. They're foretellers of the law. And so this is God speaking to them in that history. Now, to be sure, uh, I said a moment ago, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are history. They, they're also prophetic. God is also speaking through them. But prophecy is a very direct, didactic encounter with revelation from God. This is real history, and it's real prophecy. We're being brought back into the history. This is the moment where they're divided and discouraged. This is a moment where they've been lollygagging, in particular with Zechariah, because Y'all should already know, Haggai has, has already told you guys what time it is. Why are you wasting time? Why are you lollygagging? Two decades almost have passed. Haggai was, was already with you guys. And, and now in addition, uh, two months have passed since Haggai was with you. God spoke to you through Haggai. Why aren't you doing anything about it? In the eighth month of the second year of Darius... Two months have passed, uh, right? Parents, you, you know when you tell your kids, clean, clean your room, right? And then, you, and then you go and you check an hour later and you're like, for real? You know, like, this is an hour, you know, are you serious right now? This is an hour. You guys, you've had two months. Build the temple, stop fighting, get holy, repent. And this is what I see. In the eighth month, draw your eyes at the text, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came. That is the way that the text indicates this isn't the message of a mortal. This is the message of the immortal God. The word of the Lord has come to the lollygaggers. The procrastinators and the perpetrators, the word of the Lord has come. The hesitators and the haters, the word of the Lord has come. The word of the Lord came, 1-1, one, one, 
to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu, saying, now, now hang on again, we're going to 405, stop and go, stop. Well, you know, what, what's going on in particular with these names? Uh, well, let, let, let's consider this. The word of the Lord comes to these figures. It is God who is speaking, and he's speaking to these figures. The figures that we read, we have Zechariah, Berechiah, and Edu. Okay? Now recall what I told you. What does Zechariah's name mean? Oh, the irony, God remembers, and none of you remembered. So Zechariah means, or you're just not participating, it's kind of warm in here, I know, the mask got you steamed up, but Zechariah means God remembers. Berechiah means God will bless. Edu means at the appointed time. Put it together, God remembers, God will bless at the appointed time. He remembers and he will bless at the appointed time. And who is the he that he is talking about? The Lord. In our English translation, Lord is put in all caps so as to indicate that the prophet is using the divine name of God, Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, the revelation of God, the God who is. Zechariah isn't coming in the name of any old generic God. You say, oh, I believe in God. Okay, lots of people believe in God. But the question is, what God do you believe in? Who is the God who you believe in? Not just any old God, but Yahweh, the true and living God. And so when we preach, when we teach, when we gather in worship, we're keen to define these things as is revealed in Scripture. I don't want anyone to hear this message and think that I'm just up here talking about a generic God. No, I'm talking about the true and living God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. I, I come in the name of the God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. I come in the name of the Son who incarnated Himself and took on a human nature, a human family. He became a seed of Abram. He stepped into this story that we are talking about. And his name was Yeshua. His name was Jesus. And he is the eternal son sent of the Father in the power of the Spirit who came as a man and lived life as a man to live the life that Adam did not live, to live the life that Abram's seed did not live, to recapitulate the history of Adam and, and Abram and to give his life as a sacrifice for them. For they deserved death. They rebelled against the giver of life and were met with death. Behold, God himself stepped into the creation to handle this fallen predicament in which we find ourselves. I come today in his name. This is the God who I am telling you about. The God who has offered a resolution to the problem of humanity in the fall. And he has done it by his grace. He didn't have to do it. He did it by his grace as a gift for us. Zechariah says, I come in his name. Understand who I'm telling you I'm talking about. But not just who I'm telling you I'm talking about. He's actually talking in the first person for this God. God remembers. God will bless. He will do so at the appointed time. The post-exile is that time. It's the time of blessing. You're back in the land. You, you, you're, you, but you're not experiencing the blessing now, are you? The experience was theirs to have, but instead they were acting like their fathers in the days of old. In fact, look at the text, verse 2. What does it say? The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Zechariah 1117 mentioned Edu as the paternal grandfather of Zechariah. This is personal for Zechariah. God was angry at your fathers. Zechariah is included in that. You're, 
You're talking about my dad? <laughs> you know, you're talking about my dad? You're talking about Herman? What's going on here? The Lord, verse 2, is very angry with your fathers. That leads us to the next point on your outline. We move from announcement to anger. It's heated. Uh, this is worth really taking a stop on our 405 this morning to meditate on this line here. The Lord was very angry. He was angry at your daddies. This is an honor-shame culture. You don't, you, know, you don't talk about people's daddies. Uh, even in our culture, telling your mama jokes or whatever can get you in a fight on the street. Like, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? You're saying our dads were a bunch of haters? Like, what are you talking about? And now Zechariah is saying, you're just like your dads. The cancel culture of his day would want to shut him down for what he just said. You're just like your dads. Delete, unfriend, you know, send him mean emails, unfollowed, unfriended, cancel him. How are you going to talk about our dads that way? We can imagine the prophet addressing the people with this revelation. The people gathered to hear it. We can imagine the hymns in the halls of the crowd. When Ezra and, and Haggai were crying out to the people, the murmurs in the crowd were audible. We read in Ezra chapter 3, verse 11, of the audible sounds of the crowd as they were crying out to them and calling out their sin. You could, you could hear the sounds in the crowd. There is a saying that if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that hollers is the one you hit. This saying might be unfamiliar, and it might be too country, but I was raised by a, a country dad and in, in the hood, so we have some sayings like this. So forgive me, I'll explain. If you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that hollers is the one you hit. I'm not recommending after church you find dogs and start throwing rocks at them. It's just a metaphor. You throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps, the one that starts making noise is the one that got hit with a rock. The idiom is obvious. If you say something to a group of people, the people who complain about it are most likely the ones that it's true about. This is true not just in terms of, of speaking. It's also true in the medium of so social media. Maybe you've experienced that. You might post something uh, about a, a particular behavior or belief or something like that, and then you'll find that people will personalize it. And like a pack of dogs, you'll find some yelping at you. Are you talking about me? Uh, for example, when a woman maybe makes a statement like, men are creepy, uh, you know, you might get the creepy guys who start inboxing you, and, and they're mad about it because you threw a rock into the pack, and they start yelping. You know, that's how that happens. People complain. They get defensive. They can see themselves in a description. You make a general statement, again, about belief or behavior, misconduct, and someone's going to take exception to that remark. Zechariah is talking about dads. There's going to be people that take issue with that. There's going to be people who take issue, you know, with pastors when they preach or they post. Are you talking about me? You can post a Bible verse and, oh, are you talking about me? It's just a Bible verse. Calm down. You know, there's a story of a radio DJ who would dedicate songs on the air. And he would, you know, he would say, this song is dedicated for whatever, and he'd play a, play a song. And there's a story about this one time where he said, the, the, the next song is dedicated to everyone who needs it. And then he played Hank Williams' song, Mind Your Own Business. And for the next several days, the story goes on about how all these people were like, why did you insult me on your show? They really personalized it. So no doubt, as you open Zechariah, you think about the history, and you see how he leads out the gate, you know, talking, dissing their dads, there's going to be some yelping, some whining, some reactions to this. And in so doing this, they would be missing the main point. This isn't about your daddies. This is about the Father in heaven. I'm, I'm talking to you about, about our dad. Don't, 
don't focus on anything other than that. Yeah, your dads were dysfunctional and divisive and in the dark. But I'm talking about what the dad, the father has. To, and what he has, looking at us, is anger. His wrath burns against sin. And what is going on with us not walking in unity, not fulfilling our mission, not being about the Father's business, what this entails is that we have stepped on the wrathful side of the Holy God. This should silence any yelping in the pack of the dogs. It should humble the proud. It should humble the petty. If they would but pause and listen and reflect and stop shooting the messenger, Zechariah has a message that Haggai already brought them and they shot at, let me bring it to you again, a second time. The prophets have come for the prodigals. God is angry, y'all. And the anger of the Lord, of course, is a topic that is taboo in our day. It is politically incorrect to bring up the anger of the Lord, which is, which is not only unfortunate, but it's also negligent. Why is it negligent? Because the anger of the Lord is all over the scriptures. As A.W. Pink notes in his famous book on the attributes of God, a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger and fury and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. Now that, that, that's why I, I, I say it is negligent, because it's all over the Bible. With this quote before us from the great thinker uh, Pink, it is also important to note that since God is simple, since his attributes are one and the same and they're not divisible, God's not to be parted in any way. It's not like his love and his tenderness are, are in competition with one another. It's just to say that, look, this is all over the Bible. You've got to deal with it. This is what the Bible says. So, so it's negligent to not talk about it. It's unfortunate to, to bow down to PC forces that otherwise would say, hey, you can't talk about it. It's negligent. It's unfortunate. It's also dangerous. We are talking about being at odds with God. You ever have someone upset with you and you didn't know that they were upset with you or whatever and uh, maybe you put your foot in your mouth because you were acting like you guys were okay and really you weren't and then later you find out, oh, that was really awkward and maybe you damaged the relationship anymore. You ever have someone who's mad at you and you don't know about it? We're talking about God here. He, Zechariah's like, he, he's mad at us. I need, I need to let you guys know. He's, he's mad at us. And this is really serious business because we're talking about the one who holds life itself in his hands. Not only the one who, who created life and the universe, but also the one who sustains it. He can actually say the word and it's over. We're done. We breathe our last breath and we collapse on the ground and that's what we get. We rebelled against the one who has given us life. He takes life back. The punishment fits the crime. I have to tell you this, Zechariah says. We're talking about God here, Zechariah says. God is powerful. God gave you life. God sustains your life. And he's, he's mad at us. He's angry at us, and rightly so. Understand, i got to stop on this 405 here on this, because the theology in this is so important to understand. It is so misunderstood in our age. God is eternal. God transcends the way that we experience things. He's eternal. He's without beginning. He's without end. He's, e he's eternal. He's not a member of a species like us. He's one of a kind. 
And his kind is eternal and his kind is holy. So he transcends the way that we experience things like anger or a plethora of things that we experience. Nothing comes close because he's God. He's, he's one of a kind. We experience what we experience as fallen, limited creatures. So we need to be careful. When we read about the anger of God and maybe there's pushback in the culture, that we make sure that we're understanding this from the divine perspective and not the human perspective. And when we're thinking about the divine perspective, we must remember that God is eternal. First of all, God is holy. Now follow me. Because God is holy, He is perfect. It, it then means that God's anger is not irrational and it's not some sort of a loss uh, 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 self-control. It's not a temper tantrum. I want it. I want it. You can't have it. You know, God's not on the ground kicking and screaming like some little punk kid. That's not, that's not, or I guess adults do it now too. God's not Karen. You know, he's not, oh, I can't have my way. God's not losing his temper. We don't want to project our fallen human understanding of what anger is as, again, imperfect finite beings. That's not what the anger of the Lord is because he's, he's perfect, he's holy. Furthermore, he is eternal, immutable, and passable. This means that God isn't going through emotions the way that we go through emotions. You can watch a movie, oh, that's funny, and then, oh, I'm sad, and oh, that's funny again, and oh, I'm crying. You're going through emotions because you're finite creatures in time. God doesn't, God is eternal, and he's immutable. He's not going through things that way. God, and, and this is good because it means God doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed. That should get an amen, right? He doesn't wake up on the wrong side. He's not grumpy or moody. You don't have to start your prayer. Oh, Father who art in heaven, how are you doing today, Lord? <laughs> you know, you all right? You, are we good? Okay, all right. Well, I have a couple things I'd like to ask, but I just, you know, check, make sure. Make sure you're all right, okay? God's not, you don't have to butter him up. He's not changing his mind. He's not insecure. He's not lashing out. That's not what Zechariah is saying. God's anger is, is not a passing motion. God's anger is this. Note takers. God's anger is a manifestation of his eternal righteousness. God is, God's anger is a manifestation of his eternal righteousness, which is intrinsic to his nature. God is, he's, he's righteous, that's what he is. He's, he's righteous. He's true. He's righteous. As well, he's love. And so he can't stand evil. Now, understand, he's eternal, so there never was a moment when this was not the case. And you might say, well, yeah, but there was a moment before the creation, like Genesis begins with, in the beginning, God created. So how about before the beginning, when God was just God, and he was kicking it by himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, and this eternal bliss with the three persons, and perfect love. I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't any... You know, there wasn't anger in him then. Yes, but again, God's anger is a manifestation of his eternal righteousness. Before the creation began, God was eternally righteous. He's always been that way. So his anger isn't something that comes and goes because he's always eternally righteous. So he cannot stand evil. There never was a moment when that was not the case because there never was a moment when God was not God. And so God's anger isn't coming and going. Likewise, God's love isn't coming and going. And I hope that excites you. We read in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, God saying to his people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Think about that. His love is everlasting. He doesn't flip it on. You know, in the 1980s, when I gave my heart to the Lord, the Lord didn't flip on and, I love you now, Matt Jones, you know. 
And then in the 80s and early 90s, when I, you know, I was kind of doing the prodigal son thing, you know, God was, he flipped the switch, now I'm mad at you. And then in the 90s, when I went forward on the rededication altar call and said, Lord, take me, take me, I'm sorry. He didn't flip on the happy switch. God's not moving in states of, Zechariah, as he's dropping this on him, it's not like, God. okay, God likes you now, and now he doesn't, now he does, now he doesn't, now he does. I've loved you with an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31.3. He's eternal. That love has always been there. Keep in mind his eternal decree that we read about in Ephesians, before the foundations of the world he chose, he gave this love. The great Reformed theologian and pastor Gerhardus Voss has this great quote, and he says, the best proof that God will never cease to love us is that he never began. It, never, it wasn't a switch that he had to turn on. He, he has always loved his people before the foundations of the world. Now we, again, this should be, talking about God, so don't project your own, you know, finite creaturely things here. We're talking about God. He's eternal. He's holy, as I've been saying. So we don't want to project. We don't want to mistake his love or his anger. We're talking about anger, because Zechariah's talking about anger. I'm just sneaking in love here because of his inseparable operations, and he's one God, and his love and his anger aren't in competition with one another. They're, they're, they're always there, but with regard to his anger, keep in mind, his righteousness is always there, when he's angry at Israel or he's angry at us, he's not being unfair or vindictive. I say this because the gods of our culture are very much that way. They are unfair and, and, and vindictive. But, but in, in kind of pop culture, of course, the gods of pop culture that we see a lot, it seems like they never get upset. They're always happy at us except when you're politically incorrect, then, then they get mad at you. But for the most part, the gods of our culture are happy slappy. They're non-judgmental. You know, they're positive life coaches, and they're full of suggestions for your life. No commands, just suggestions. You might try this, the gods of our culture. The priests of our New Age religion are figures like Dale Carnegie and Joel Osteen. They want you to be happy. They want you to chase your dreams. Chase your dream. You be you. You follow that. You just do you. You go. You go. All right. And our culture, along with this idea, is also bought into the notion of moral relativism, which is to say that there are no morals. There are no rights and wrongs. And, you know, to each his own. You know, you think that's wrong, and I don't think that's wrong. And so... You know, we just do whatever we want to do. You know, God God's not, doesn't it say it in the Bible somewhere, judge not or whatever. That's the one Bible verse that everyone knows. You know, you shouldn't judge other people. Have you heard that? You shouldn't tell people God's angry. Like, you're right, you're wrong, God's mad at you, and your religion's true, and theirs isn't. You shouldn't do that. It's wrong to do that. Well, if it's if it's wrong to think that others are wrong, then how can you tell me I'm wrong for thinking others are wrong? Moral, t moral relativism can't even get started. If you say there are no truths, you're saying it's true that there are no truths, you've contradicted yourself. It's like saying I can't speak a word of English. But, 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 but the modern religion and the modern gods of our day are irrational that way. And they'll just say, you can't judge. You've got to give God's love. God's, what are you, Zechariah, get out of here, man. God's mad. And that continues to this day. Richard Niebuhr famously described the modern church preaching a God without wrath who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through ministrations of a Christ without a cross. 
And this indictment highlights the importance of understanding God's anger, the importance of me stopping on this verse and saying, let's talk about the eternal and holy God. Let's talk about how right and appropriate it is for him to be angry. Let's talk about how his anger is not cruel. His anger is fair and right. God isn't going to punish anyone, anyone, any more than what they deserve. You might say, yeah, but what about hell? I mean, isn't that, I mean that's not fair. You're going to send someone to hell forever? That just sounds cruel to me. Why would it be forever? Because you've rebelled against the God who is forever. He's eternal, as I've been saying. The punishment fits the crime. You've rebelled against one who is eternal. The consequences are everlasting. You've rebelled against one who is holy. These are the consequences of that. This is, how, this is how crime and punishment works. You commit a crime, the punishment fits the crime. The punishment is determined by the object that has been transgressed or sinned against or violated. Uh, consider the act of uh, removing limbs. This is a morbid illustration, forgive me. Uh, but the, the, the heinous act of removing limbs. If I said I pulled the legs off of a grasshopper, you know, you'd be like, all right, uh, whatever, that's, that's weird. I pulled the legs off of an ant. Uh, yeah, oh, okay, you know. I, I pulled the legs off of a bird. You know, oh, man, that's gross. <laughs> you know, I pulled the legs off my dog. She was just running too much. You go, oh, that's really, you know, that, you, you need counseling. We're, we're going to call the authorities. I pulled the legs off of one of my kids. Their foot stomping in the morning was just too loud. You know, he just wakes up every morning driving me crazy. I just pulled his legs off. You'd say, what is wrong with you? Now, the purpose of the illustration isn't to be creepy and weird. It's to say that in each instance, the same act has been performed, the removing of a limb. But if you're talking about ants and grasshoppers, you go, oh, you know, whatever. That's kind of weird, but whatever. Versus a, a cat or a dog or, well, cats, who likes those? But, you know, <laughs> you, know uh, or, you know, my son, you know, who's foot stomping in the morning, right? Obviously, the punishment is determined by the object to which it is done against. God is infinitely more precious than a child. He's infinitely more than, than, than anything in this creation. To violate him brings that consequence. He's not being vindictive and cruel and petty or anything by, by no stretch of the imagination. And further, those who will experience hell, it is as theologian J.I. Packer has noted, before hell is an experience inflicted by God, it is a state for which a person himself offs by retreating from the light which God shines in the heart to lead him to himself. Zechariah is shining the light. You guys don't want to hear this, but God is angry. Verse, verse 3, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So he's God not just of anger, but he's a God of love. He, he wants to come to them, Understand those, those attributes of God aren't in competition with one another by any stretch of the imagination. This moves us from anger to arrival. The Lord has brought them to the land so that he can dwell among the people, so that the temple imagery and all that comes, and paradise lost, and priesthood, and it's all there, and God's there, and he wants to arrive in their arrival and be with them and make his home with them. You prodigals, I want to bring you home. I'm telling you about his anger, not so that you'll stay away from from home because he's loved to run back to home while there still is time. 
Now, the exiles have come back to the land. The exiles are divided, discouraged, dysfunctional. Most of the people didn't come back. I covered this when we were studying Ezra. Most of the people didn't come back. The call of God, I'm bringing you back to the land. Most of the people were like, hmm, go back to the land or kick it in Babylon. I'm going to kick it in Babylon. Oh, you know, uh, I'll wait for my kids to finish high school in Babylon. Then maybe we'll go back, you know. I'll wait, I'll wait till, you know, whatever, you know, it's kind of comfortable in Babylon. I don't think I want to go back. In, in Babylon, they had assimilated into the culture. They're making money. They're doing well. They spread out in diaspora. They're, you know, you want us to go back? You want us to do all that? That's so hard. Dr. Phillips notes in his commentary that vast numbers of the Jews had ignored God's invitation to come back to the land. They were scattered all over the civilized world. Long ago, they had ceased to regard their exile as deportation. It now seemed to be very profitable dispersion. They were getting on in the world. They're making a lot of money. On the other hand, the Jews who had returned to the promised land were poor, weak, discouraged. Most of the repatriates were young. They were middle-aged men, and they have children. The very few old people in the Jewish colony, nearly all the people have been born in Babylon. This was hard. Return to me. That, that, that's hard. We think of the call of Christ. Carry your cross. Let the dead bury the dead. Follow after me. That's a hard call. But by his grace, none would come. By his grace, they were there. But Zechariah is not done. He lays in. Look at verse 4. Don't be like your dads. Don't be like, this is the next point, your ancestors. You know, sin has a way of ruining families. It's a part of the systemic nature of sin. You think of alcoholism, for example. Alcoholism runs in families. Children of alcoholics are four times more likely than other children to become alcoholics themselves. The effects of, of abuse. If you've been raised in abuse and dysfunction, the statistics are, are increased that you too will share in that sin. Divorce, according to Nicholas Wolfinger of the University of Utah in his uh, book, Understanding the Divorce Cycle, the risk of divorce is 50% higher when one spouse comes from a divorced home and 2% higher when both partners do. I could go on with like, if you were raised in this, chances are you, you know, like it's really sad, but you know, this. don't be like your dad's. You guys are acting like your dads. What did their dads do? Well, they got us in Babylon. You know, what did your dads do in Babylon? They're still in Babylon. Don't be like your dads. To whom, verse 4, the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and your evil deeds. Don't listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. They don't listen to me. They don't give heed to me. Don't be like your dads. It's a story of unrequited love. They didn't come home. These prodigals never returned. But God is faithful. He keeps crying out to their children. He keeps calling them in community. He says, come together. Come before me. Come, I will dwell among you. Come together. Let's do this together. Get out of isolation. Get out of your homes. Come, let's do this together. They couldn't do it alone. They needed to do it together. So too in our day, the work of God requires the people of God. And we live in a culture that is more and more isolated. I was reading a story of the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver. He was speaking at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Uh, Silver was talking about the challenges they face in the NBA and, and, and talks about how it's really a societal one. Here's, here's the quote from the story I read. If you're around a team in this day and age, they always have their headphones on. The players are isolated. They, they have their heads down. Uh, uh, there's unhappiness. There's isolation in the league to the point where it's almost a pathology, he says. 
I don't think it's unique to these players. I don't think it's something that's just going on in superstar athletes. I think it's a generational issue. You're like your dad's. You're like your dad's. You're like the culture. You're like the world. You're supposed to be set apart. You're supposed to be different. Don't be like them. Silver noted in this article the days when Isaiah Thomas said, championships are won on the bus. Those are long gone. Those days are gone. Likewise, Zechariah says, those days are gone. New days have come. This is the appointed time, the time of blessing. Don't act like your fathers and miss this time of blessing. Verse 5, your fathers, where are they? And their prophets, where, where are they? Do they live forever? The rhetoric of this question seems to be twofold. One, they're gone. Where are they? They're gone. They're not here. Second, where are they buried? Where are your dads? Where are they buried? Huh? You tell me. Where are they buried? Yeah, that's right. They're buried in Babylon. And here's the thing for Jewish people. Where you're buried is a big deal theologically and culturally. People wanted to be buried in the holy city where the post-exilic remnant was actually standing. The Jewish scripture foresaw a Messiah who would come and would raise the dead and usher in a new world. Jerusalem was the front row seat of that day. Oh, to be raised in Jerusalem. Oh, to die in Jerusalem. Because the resurrection would come to Jerusalem. In fact, if you know the land, some of you have been there with me, in fact. And on the outside, here's a picture of the eastern gate down by the valley of Kidron on the side of the Mount of Olives. It's full of the graves of Jewish people. It's prime real estate. Where are your dads? Where are they buried? Oh, that's right. They chose on Babylon. That's where they're buried. But we're here. We're in the land of promise. We're in the place where the Messiah will come and raise the dead. For us in this age, we know this is the, the place of the second coming, which is preceded by tribulation and rapture. When he comes for his people, when he rescues us, when he returns in glory, when he raises the dead and he judges the sheep and the goats and he establishes his kingdom on earth and ushers in the new creation of all things. But where are your dads? Oh yeah, they're buried in Babylon. But where are you? Get in line and stay in your lane. Walk in accordance with where you are and where I have brought you. Draw your eyes to the text, verse 6. But did not my words and my statutes which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Now notice what happens. Then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to do in accordance, this point on our outline, according, accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Man, that was a rough and really short sermon. Your dads, they're lame. Don't be like them. God is mad at you. God, judgment, rah, rah, right? And then you go, yeah, they're probably not going to like that sermon. Uh, and then you get to verse 6, and it says, then they repented. And they said, you know what? He's right about this. And, and let's get in line, and let's stay in our lane. They acknowledge the prophet is right. They acknowledge the revelation is right. They acknowledge that God is right, and they're wrong. They're not shaking their moral relativist fists and saying, who are you to say? It's God. God has every prerogative to say. They turn from their sin. They repent. They turn, which is an invitation that we give every Sunday. Will you hear this message today and know that God is eternally righteous and you stand against him and you encounter his anger? Will you turn from that and throw yourself at the place of his mercy and experience his grace and renewal? I invite you to that. I saw a meme, and the meme said there are two types of people. And it had a, a, a picture of some luggage on the ground. It said there's two types of people, those who unpack their bags immediately upon returning home, and those who let the suitcase full of clothes and souvenirs sit for days or weeks or months. There's two types of people. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's so true. 
because uh, I have a couple of suitcases uh, from two trips, in fact, on the floor in my room, and it drives my wife crazy. There's two types of people in response to the Word of God, those who come in repentance and faith and those who don't. Those who come with a cultural Christianity, which is nominal at best, or those who come with an actual Christianity, which is pneumatological at the core. It's a God who saves, a God who sanctifies, a God who produces fruit. And that act of repentance is a work of God. It is by His mercy. You see in Romans chapter 2, verse 4 here. It is His mercies that lead us in repentance. And so we take no credit in turning from our sin, in every credit in acknowledging the Lord. Here in, uh, in Zechariah's prophecy, we see the people turn, and we say, Oh Lord, look at what it is that you have done. You have rescued them from the sins of their fathers. You have rescued them from their individual sins. You've rescued them from systems and societies and their, their own fallen hearts. You've, you've rescued them from this. Sin ripples through communities. Sin destroys families. This was spoken of by Moses. This is spoken of by their Holy Scripture. I think of Leviticus 26 that I put in front of you. But the Lord is faithful to his promises to gather a people unto himself. And this is the final point that will bring us to communion. And soon will close us in song. On your outline you see the final point, the point of application. And there I have referenced, if you would quickly turn from Zechariah to Luke 15. And we'll move quick. This is where the 405 opens up. In Luke 15, we have the famous parable of the prodigal son. In fact, we began our worship service today reading from Luke 15. We read the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then it comes to the parable of the lost son. Just as I move from uh, insect limbs to you know, birds and dog limbs to uh, a child limb, so these parables move from things that are lesser to the thing that is greater. A son who is lost is infinitely more important than a sheep or some money that is lost. A man has two sons, Luke 15. One old, one younger. In their culture, it's an honor and shame culture as I shared earlier, younger sons uh, 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 disrespecting their father in the way that this younger son does is, is it's so, it's so offensive in that culture. He's the younger son. The older son has the right to the birthright to be in charge of daddy's estate, but the younger son... Uh, uh, comes to dad and offends dad, but dad responds in grace. Dad obliges. He gets his inheritance from dad. He runs off prodigalis. He goes into what is opulent. He makes a mess of his life. It, 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 the way that he makes a mess out of his life was so scandalous to Jewish readers. Look at verse 15. You read in verse 15 about how he's working with swine. He's even looking at, at like swine food and going, oh, that looks, that looks tasty. It shows you how low he's hit. For a Jewish guy to be working among that which is unclean and, and eating and partaking in that, that just shows you how low he has went. Notice that he comes to repentance as he muses on his father's goodness in verses 17 and 18. You see that? He muses on his father's goodness. In verse 18, we read, I will get up, I will go to my father, I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He humbles himself. And see what the father does. The father doesn't even wait for the son to come. The father runs out. So against his culture for a, a father to behave in this manner. So, uh, so kind of prodigal in his own right, because he's doing that which is unthinkable. He he hikes up his, 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 his garb and he runs out to his son and he greets his son and he embraces his son and he kisses his son and he throws a party for his son. 
We want to celebrate. We want to rejoice. Verse 32, for that brother of yours was dead and he has become to live and that which was lost has been found. Look at verse 7 of chapter 15. I tell you in the same way there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The context here, Jesus is a prophet to Israel. And, and, and they don't want him. And, they, and they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And he's crying out to them. And he has come to die at their hands. He has come to give his life for them. He has come to redeem. He has come to give himself. As we come to communion, as we open the top of this cup, as we take this bread, we are reminded that he was enfleshed for us. He came to a people, his own people, knowing they would reject him. And he came anyway to give himself. Like Zechariah, who cried out to the people, you are not right with God, repent and turn. But the difference in Zechariah's day, they turned. In Christ's day, they didn't turn. But he was faithful to build a remnant to himself. Nonetheless, he called his disciples to himself after he conquered the grave. And he gathered them and said, do this as often as you can in remembrance of me. Because it reminds us not only of who he is, the God in flesh, but of where we stand before him, lest we come in repentance and faith. Receive the bread, brothers and sisters. The cup reminds us of blood. Blood is required to live. Without blood, you don't have life. When your blood is contaminated, you, you can't donate it. The Red Cross won't accept it. It's tainted. It's good for nothing. Likewise, the fallen children of Adam and Eve, our blood is tainted. It's good for nothing. A transfusion has come to purify us. And he has poured his blood out for us. That, that he might take the death that we deserved in order to give us a life that we did not deserve. Brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't come to be a life coach to give you your best life now. He, 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 he came to give you life everlasting because the best is yet to come. We drink the cup, we proclaim his death until he comes. It's easy to look at our world and see shenanigans and foolery and this politician doing this and this nation doing this and this happening over here and whatnot. When the newspapers pose the question, what's wrong with the world? The great English writer and thinker G.K. Chesterton wrote a letter in response to the Times question, what's wrong with the world? And he answered that question with this, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. It's by his grace. We watch the news, we see the fallen world, you read Zechariah, oh, you're like your dad's, that's where we would be, but by his grace. We would be prodigals out there. And in the story of the prodigal son, when he comes back, there's rejoicing. There's the older brother who doesn't get it. And the older brother reflects the fathers, those buried in Babylon, the people who didn't get it. And we're reminded that there's people out there who don't get it, who don't understand. And Christ has called us to this place for this appointed time and given us this mission to build this temple, his church, to go and to be a light to the world. As he was calling Israel in that moment, in that post-exile, we too study this and we're reminded, oh, we're here. God's place is here. He has a purpose for us here. He has a work for us to do here. Brothers and sisters, may we hear his word today and be not like our fathers and others, but go and sacrifice for the sake of Christ 
in the city of Los Angeles for his glory until he comes. Let's pray and let's sing. Lord, we thank you for your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you for the gift of communion to remind us of the body and the blood. We thank you for the gift of song, Lord, that we might sing praises unto you. Lord, as we stand, as we sing, as we reflect upon what we have heard, the triune God who is holy, the triune God who is angry. Lord, may we not misunderstand your, your anger or your holiness, let alone your love, or take your love for granted. We are prone to wander. We are prone to misunderstand, as you well know. Oh God, we don't pray to inform you of anything. We pray to confess. We pray to plead with you. Lord, grab a hold and, and, and move in our hearts here today that we will leave this place different from the way in which we entered it. Receive these songs of worship, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.